Welcome, everyone, to the AI and Business Podcast. I am Matthew DeMello, Senior Editor here at Emerge. Today's guest on the show is Senior Vice President of Federal and R&D at Palantir, Shannon Clark. Shannon has spent nearly 20 years immersed in the defense sector, both for private contractors and the federal government. In conversation with Emerge CEO and Head of Research, Daniel Fagella, on today's show, Shannon explains the core cultural and technical barriers that make AI readiness so challenging in the defense sector and the best places within the Department of Defense to begin preparing legacy systems for AI enhancement. Without further ado, here's their conversation. So, Shannon, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Dan. Yes. We're getting to talk about a topic that we've unpacked a few times over the years from your vantage point, but really we're going to start off talking about hurdles. You guys are probably the best known AI player in the defense space. Palantir is a very, very big name, and you get to see a lot of different parts of the defense ecosystem and what they're trying to do to level up. I want to kick us off with what you see as those core kind of cultural and technical barriers that make AI readiness challenging in defense. How would you identify those? What do you think are the biggest ones for people to know? Yeah. Well, again, thanks for having me. And thanks for, thanks for the compliment about saying that Palantir is one of the best in defense because after a decade of, of being at Palantir, I certainly feel that way. And it's, it's the reason that I'm still at Palantir today. I think you know that that there are two components to it. There's a there's a technical component to it and there's a cultural component to it. I thought about this last week as I was sitting in the airport at Dulles and I was on a ground delay on the ground stop because the FAA had put the ground stop in place and shut down for I think they said the first time in 20 years. Jeez. Um in terms of like what you know what we're dealing with sometimes when it comes to government agencies and and systems and Later that day or the next day, my mother said to me something like, did you know that that system that, you know, that FAA system was 30 years old and it's not going to be, you know, upgraded for six more years? And I said to her, I said, mom, this is what we are dealing with across all the day. across the DOD all day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but and as an average American who doesn't spend time, you know, so much time in Washington, D.C., she doesn't know that. Right. Of course. So. And I said, this, the problem is that there are so many great systems when you go across the Department of Defense and the broader government that are old legacy systems that have really, really valuable information. I mean, you can imagine some place like the VA. I mean, all of the data that they have amassed and all the programs that they've used over 30 years. But how do you make those systems ready for AI today? And that is a very, very big challenge. And it's something we see at Palantir where we want to be able to harness all of that important data, whether it be in the government or, you know, this stands true for the commercial world, too. If you go to any of the large manufacturing companies, they will tell you about these large legacy systems that have been built by systems integrators or companies, you know, airplane manufacturers. You can imagine the the systems there as well that collect sensor data. But how do you make those systems ready for AI today? And the answer is, one, it's extremely costly if you try to make those systems AI ready, as opposed to investing in something new. And two, it doesn't always work, (laughs) unfortunately, because they're just not capable, right? You know, it's like you can't add color to a TV that's just meant to be black and white, right? Yeah. 
So we, we see this all the time. And I think, you know, for us, it's really about how do we, like I said, kind of harness all of that data? How do you integrate the data from the legacy systems so that you can do amazing things like with some of these large language models and some of these amazing computer vision capabilities now? But how do you bring it into a new system today that was actually ready for AI? And, you know, we saw this on one particular project we, we worked on with the Department of Defense where they actually just, they were trying to produce computer vision algorithms and put them on legacy systems. It just wasn't working. Users were fighting back. They didn't want to use these legacy systems. Like it, it didn't work from a user like standpoint, a user perspective. And it also just wasn't, like I said, these systems weren't made for it. And they did a study to say, hey, what, how are we going to manage this? Like, are we best investing in getting this system to be AI ready? Or do we need to invest in something whole? And they, they hired a consulting firm. The firm went out and they came back with the same results that they said they found in the commercial world, which is, unfortunately, it's too costly to make some of these systems AI ready. You have to harness what you can from them, but you really have to in, invest in what new, you know, as they kind of call them, smart systems. And that's what they did. They said, we have to kind of start from scratch because, and use a new smart enabled AI ready system because these legacy systems just can't handle it. So unfortunately, I think it's taking time on the technical side for more people to realize that, if that makes sense. It, it does. And I think there's, there's so many moving parts here as you've articulated. And clearly, I mean, as a vendor selling something new, you guys have a, you yeah. know, a, a horse in the race of, hey, you know, use the new thing instead of the old thing. And, and if, as a market yeah. research firm, you know, we have no such bias per se, but knowing where you guys stand, what I can imagine is you head into these projects, very complicated federal projects you're involved in. I mean, some of the biggest in the world, yeah. I would bet, and I'd love for you to correct me on this. I would bet that there is quite a menagerie of different moving parts when we're trying to get to an outcome. Maybe it's, you know, detecting something with drones or, you know, predicting some kind of shipments or movement based on whatever other third-party data we're yanking from. There's probably some cases where there is a system that's so busted, we literally need to get everybody to accept that this entire thing needs to fade away. That's probably one thing that happens. Right. A second thing is there might be systems that they're really not ideal, but the rebuilding of the entirety of them would be such a multi-year thing. We do want to find a way to hold the data we want in the right harmonized formats or whatever in a way that will allow us to work in our nicer sandbox. And there's probably this mix. Some of it is stick in a brand new thing. Some of it is completely convince people to get rid of an old thing. And some of it is find the weird way to make the Frankenstein bits work, right? Where it's like, okay, yeah. I'm not going to convince you to completely put a stick of dynamite under that thing, but we need yeah. these sources of data out of that in order to make this work for you, Mr. Customer. What does it look like under the hood when you have that many kinds of moving parts that need to be treated differently? It's almost like a therapy session, I say. No, <laughs> um, it, it's like doing an autopsy actually on someone's data. And I okay. I always say that because what happens is a lot of times when you lift the hood up, just like, you know, I don't know if you've ever done a home renovation project, but I, I went through one of those last year. And it's like, you know, every time you see someone peel the tile back in your bathroom, like you're looking for the black molds underneath or, yeah. you know, what did I find there? It's a little bit the same when you start to get into any of these organizations, because as you start to pull back some of these layers and peel the onion and you see the data and you see kind of what's wrong with it, you also start to see like how important some of the other data sets are that like people weren't necessarily thinking about that are also important and you want to incorporate those. So a lot of times what I like to say is 
we start with a problem and we when we talk to a customer and they tell us, you know, okay, we have this data set and we think it's important. This one's old, you know, maybe like you've mentioned that they, you know, they think there's bits and pieces of it are valuable, but we don't want to rebuild it. But then it's really such a process of going through because it's it's an emotional moment for these folks just as much as it is a technical one and honestly overcoming it is a lot of times it's it's never about getting access to the data as a technical challenge it's usually an emotional one because people are worried about you know what happens if they give up their data you know will that mean that the system will go away and their job will go away and their job will become irrelevant i mean just for the reasons that you might think. So how do you like work with them to say like, no, we don't want your job to go away. We don't, we know your data is really valuable. How do we make it so your data is more valuable? And like I said, it's, it's a lot of times I think, you know, I remember like working with some newer folks and they're like, well, we just need this data and they, they don't understand. And when we, it'll take maybe a week to get it. And I'm like, maybe you should multiply that by 10. Like it takes 10, it may take 10 weeks to get access to this because it's just such an emotional having access to data is just such an emotional thing for a lot of folks. Mm -hmm. What we find though, is I think we really try, like when you can show someone a quick win and you can show them how you can make their data really valuable and they can see that. And, you know, you can show them that it's going to make their lives faster, quicker, more efficient. That's usually at the end of the day, what, what overcomes any of the anxiety about, Hey, you know, how do we, how do we manage a system? If you can show them, Hey, we can make it so that you don't have to rebuild this thing. We can take the data that's in there. That's valuable. And you can leave it turned on, but you, you know, and you don't have to rebuild this thing from scratch. When you can do that, I think you can win trust pretty quickly in people. But like I said, it's not, it's less a technical thing a lot of times. And it's more an emotional one just because of the attachment a lot of people have to the data. Absolutely. I mean, I think anybody with a brain in their skull or 20 minutes of experience in this space will know that the cultural barriers are are significantly more formidable than the technical yeah. ones in essentially every space. So not just federal, yeah. legacy, oh, enter- sure. legacy enterprise in general. But you framed it in a way I really like. I might use this again. I'll give you a shout out. The idea that <laughs> access to data is more of an emotional barrier than a technical one. That is a very frank way of putting it. It actually strikes me as you're being like exceptionally honest about that because some people would be like, I'm not emotional, but I think people are, like you said, if they, if there's some weird yeah. fear that their job's at risk, if there's a weird fear that an enemy might get a hold of this information, if there's a weird fear that the power that they wield by being the gatekeeper to this data could go away, these are a lot of in- insinuating oh, factors yeah. that make things really challenging. And we're going to unpack those later on through our episode, but I really like setting the table with this topic here. and. Yeah, I mean, the whole notion of of it being more emotional than technical, I almost imagine that. I'd love for you to lay out how you think about it, but I'm putting myself in your shoes, working with such big complex sales and such big complex deployments. It almost feels like you've got to map out, okay, what does the client want? What does the client need? Sometimes not exactly the same, right? So you've got, yeah. to, you've got to, there's a whole art. We see it in a million interviews. There's a, an art to tactfully educating in a way that feels like co-creation because otherwise you're going to step on an ego once and you're done. And and nobody talks about that skill, by the way, I could literally have an entire podcast just focus on that skill, but uh, it's so critically important. But I imagine in your shoes, it's almost like, okay, what does the client want? What does the client need? What are all the moving parts? And then what do we think are the big emotional nodes we have to get through? Like you said, the therapy sessions, I'm almost thinking about mapping out a sale or mapping out a deployment. And having to actually figure out with your team, like, okay, 
one of the things where we need people to do some yoga breathing before we talk about these topics. Like, yeah. can you predict that better now that you've done so many of these? I think if you asked anyone on my team, they would tell you that this is my spike because normally <laughs> we walk out of a room and I, I can automatically say, okay, that's the person that I know is going to have the biggest emotional tie to this. And we always joke because sometimes people on my team will be like, no, no, that person's going to come along. And then two weeks later, they'll say, we should have listened to you. And so it's become kind of a joke on our team. But yeah, I mean, it's this way about so many different things in life. It's not just about this. But I think about this large project we started a few years ago where one of our teammates had to fly to the HR component of of an organization to talk to them about this really old legacy data system. And, you know, the person had the description of what the system was, you know, on their desk. And, you know, they had kind of like the code of like, this means this, this means that. And it was on a piece of paper. And it's like that person for 20 something years had been the person that was responsible for that data set. And they knew how the code formatted from like, you know, like a symbol to what it actually meant in a word in reality. And it wasn't that you wanted to take away that person's job, but it's like, that was all that they were responsible for. So kind of like you were just saying it, it's like, how do you help that person and make sure they understand that like, we don't want, you know, we don't want you to go into early retirement here, but we want to make that data valuable. And it is as much about like ensuring that people understand that, like I said, than it is any one of our engineers writing code to be able to transform what they put in as a symbol and make it a reality. And, you know, so it appears as like an actual word in, in the platform. And I think that as time goes by, it, this hasn't changed. Like I've seen this, you know, like I said, over a decade, it's just, it's human nature. And I think that it will continue to be a challenge and there's nothing that anyone can really do. It's really just about, you know, how do you work within the confines of that and show how the technology can help enable that person. And that's, that's the biggest barrier to like fixing that, right? Is not steamrolling someone, but just like showing them how technology and how AI can really help improve their job as opposed to work against them. Yeah, this is this is a tough thing. And again, uh, and I, I can't, I, I've never blamed a vendor for this, but I, I do think that there does have to be this this drum that we beat when we're selling enterprise AI or, you know, in this case, yeah. federal AI, that, hey, it's, it's always 100% augmentation, it's 0% automation, you know, when it comes to jobs yeah. and workflows. I think that's quite often the case for a hundred reasons, but personally, I'm, I'm not allowed to be that black and white, and I don't think it is that yeah. black and white, but I can't blame vendors for, for having to tout that. What I would say is, yeah, like you're up against, I imagine, some barriers that are really logical in the best interest of the end client, in this case, like the Department of Defense, where they would say, hey, yeah. we're concerned about these security things, or we're, we're concerned about you know the cross-functionality of this working with our teams in Iraq or whatever the case may be. And they're really thinking about the whole mission. Then you're dealing with other things that are just somebody's internal nervousness that their arcane knowledge becoming a little bit more streamlined is all of a sudden going to make, and and that's not necessarily in the best interest of the DOD, but it is in their own best interest. Do you see yourself navigating about 50-50, half and half, or is it really much more the personal in terms of your experience? There's always the person that's worried about like how, you know, combining different data sources, what that could potentially mean, right? If all of a sudden you have one large data set that has all this information in it, what does that mean for the classification of it? And we always deal with that in a very mature way. I mean, like I said, we've been doing this for so long now that I think we understand that very well. So it's probably more the latter front. But 
You know, one other thing that I really feel is, do you remember probably 15 years ago now when people talked about cyber, how like vague, you know, cyber was and people just had very, you know, few talking points and you would listen to folks on the Hill talk about cyber and they would all say how important it was, but they didn't really have, you know, much below the surface in terms of what they understood. I think we're seeing that a lot with AI now is a lot of people really want to understand AI, but they don't in a way that I think they need to yet in order to really make it so that the, the government can fully adopt it. So they, they think just like what you said, like sometimes, you know, like I'm just going to press the button and this answer is going to come out. And of course, when you have something like chat GPT and everyone kind of playing around with that over, you know, the holidays, everyone's like, well, I can just ask this thing to come up with a, a paragraph. I, you know, like I joke, like to come up with my thank you notes for, for all yes. of our- uh, Oh, I should have done that. That's a good idea. Yeah. I should have done that. Yeah. And, and it, we did play around with that. It's quite fun and I highly recommend it. But it's like you you can think of how, you know, that makes it look like it's so easy and AI is going to do all these oh, things for me. The other part is really bringing on like a very educated AI workforce to the government. And I think that a large part of that's on the acquisition side too, because what you see is that, you know, we work in partnership with so many small AI companies. And when I asked them what some of their biggest challenges are, and and we wrote a white paper and we talked to a bunch of them about this, they say the acquisition workforce, understanding what we're bringing to the table and the value that we have. And, you know, if you are a NLP provider, you're a computer vision provider, you're a data labeling provider, getting educated folks to understand the value of what they're bringing, like how do you potentially price this? How do you acquire it? How do you think about it long-term is really, really challenging for them. And I think as startups, it's even more challenging, right? Because here they are trying to become parts of large programs of record, et cetera. But that's another place, like I, I think we really need to level up the community. And I think when I think back to 10, 15 years ago, when we talked so much about cyber and people didn't really quite understand that because it it seemed to come out as faster than I think people were prepared for. I think about that now for AI. Well, and there's so many initiatives, right? I mean, we've had Mike Brown on and a bunch of other folks in the DIU on, and they're overtly focused on this issue, right? All all day and all night focused on how can we not just dangle a tiny pilot carrot, but actually have an on-ramp for these high-tech companies. How can we have nodes within the Air Force or whatever that are technical enough, like you said, they have what we call enough AI fluency where they can really assess a solution, determine what it might yeah. look like to deploy it, and not just push them through a process like they're selling backpacks in bulk because it's a very different right. thing. Right. And, you know, there's a lot of people that complain, like Steve Blank, who basically spent 45 minutes on the show complaining about how it's all still the old boys. And, you know, if they're going to buy AI, they're going to buy it from the same people that are bending metal for them. And they really need to think about the folks writing ones and zeros as, uh, you know, different than just the folks bending metal. They can't yeah. hang in metal bending forever. But these are really tough cultural challenges. Let's let's swivel the table here. We're going to talk about our, our, you know, addressing some of these issues. You probably have some hopes in your heart, you know, five, 10 years in the future, the DOD becomes more modern. We're even more prepared for China. Hopefully we're even more efficient. And that's going to require leaders within the DOD to push through some of these cultural challenges, to hire some of that technical talent, to deal with some of these emotional issues of old systems and old data. If you were going to boil down, I guess, the advice you would give to leaders within the DOD, and, and you can pick any division department role that you want, what are some of the big things that 
the people with some sway need to be doing more of if they want to have that kind of AI ready future. Well, you may think find this controversial, but I actually don't believe that what the department needs to go do is like hire great engineers and hire like more of them. I, having spent the early part of my career in the intelligence community, which was probably the highlight of my career, you know, as a 23 year old, being able to work on a counterterrorism mission was quite incredible. I understand like what motivates those that are are part of the government, and I understand what it was like for my colleagues in terms of the important missions they were working on. But I, I think it's a hard job. I mean, it was like, it was the hardest job of my life too. And I think that there are a lot of really talented engineers out there, but they don't have the patience today to work, you know, in some places where they like are under the bureaucracy, where they can't just code the way they want to, where they can't just work on things where they can't fail as fast as they want to, because, you know, they're under like certain timelines or the bureaucracy, So I really feel like the government needs to lean more on, you know, outsourcing engineering to to product and to software companies, because I think that is where you're going to find the best talent. And I I just don't believe that bringing it in-house is really the answer, because I think you're it's in no offense to the government who I love. And like I said, I devoted, you know, the first almost decade of my life to I just believe that there's so many wickets and so much bureaucracy that it makes it really hard for those engineers to be what they want to be within the confines of, you know, the government bureaucracy. And so I really wish they would think about that more. I do like the Air Force's initiative to teach people how to code and to kind of pay airmen and airwomen to learn to code as opposed to like learning Spanish or French or Chinese or Russian. I think that's really cool. And I'm, I'm definitely am all about that because I think it'll make them smarter. And to the point we were talking about, like when these folks become acquisition folks, or even when just in the room, having conversations with engineers, like they'll know what, what they're talking about. And that's awesome. But I don't think we have to force it to say like, we're going to go hire, you know, this many engineers because so much of that talent is already there. And it's and it's like probably actually going to maybe potentially be cheaper to hire some of these companies who already have these engineers on staff and to devote them to working on some of these hard problems than it is to do it in house. People don't want to like believe that, but it's true when you yeah. do the math. Uh, well, look, I mean, on on the one hand, I think there's a lot of credence to where you're going. On the other hand, again, as a vendor, it certainly would behoove you, right, to be have them lean yeah. more on you guys. So that's fine. I'm not blaming you for that. I'm just saying. You know, I sit in a certain camp. It's very, very far from, you know, I have no dogs in the fight. But that said, I'm with you and I have seen, and you've probably seen a thousand times, you have much more experience than me here. You've probably seen very talented people that work in the DOD for a year and a half and they say, this is slow. I'm done. I'm done with this. And they say, I'd like to make three times more money working the same number of hours remotely. And And they'll go work for Apple. They'll go work for Amazon. They'll go work for whoever they want to work for. And and so it is really hard for them to keep talent. And if they hire them and they keep them in a tight bureaucracy, to your point, they're not going to want to stay. They're not going to be a very good investment. So leaning on partners is often, quite obviously, a, a good choice. I'm going to agree with you there. That said, I, I think you and I are both in the camp of hopefully they'll have enough fluency in-house to know who to buy from. Because yeah. I think some of the critique around AI acquisitions by the DOD today is that these are people that are very smart, extremely experienced, but it's almost like if you told me to go like 
bake really fancy French pastries or something, right? I'd be like, I'm good at many things, I hope, but like I would be so horrible at that job. And if you made me judge the ingredients, I would just, you would never want to eat anything that I made. And I think the critique is that these people are so unplugged and they have so little in-house skill that they can't even make strategic decisions around acquisition. If it's not hiring the engineers, what are those contextual fluency skills that you hope leadership understands that maybe it's not learning to code, but what do they need to grasp conceptually to make the best call about who to buy from, what to do with AI? I think that I'm, we're seeing so many efforts, like you said, whether it's the DIU or other fronts where I think leaders are trying to really strive to bring AI in-house. I think one thing that we've really seen over the last, or, or to make it sorry, more accessible, one thing we've seen that I think has just worked well is really the idea of you've got to show up with a working thing. Like you can no longer show up today with a PowerPoint that says, I am going to build you this thing. Yeah. And here are the 45 slides that show you how I'm going to build it, how it, how it's going to perform on time, the things that it's going to do. It's like now I think where the government has got really smart and where I just continue to want them to lean in is that you say, okay, we're down selecting to a few of these different groups. And, you know, next Friday, here's a dump of data. You have to show us how this works today. Because there's nothing like showing up in front of a leader and having to answer questions and like actually having something that works. And that's where I continue and I think others continue to lean in, especially like some of the smaller AI companies too that say, hey, we can do this and we can prove to you that we can do this. Don't make it be about a PowerPoint presentation. Make it be about what's re- what's real today. So that's another area where I just hope that they continue to lean in because at the beginning of my journey, I saw that it was all about the PowerPoints. And to your point earlier today, it's like if you're the small guy that has this thing, but it, you feel like everything keeps going to the same metal benders, I think is what you we, yes. what you call them. It's like, yes. you know, how do you ever win? And it's only when you can show capability that you have a chance. Got it. So yeah, the show me, don't tell me, that's real strong advice for the startup community around AI, making this stuff digestible for leadership. To the point you brought up earlier, I'm certainly not of the camp that I think that the DOD should bring all of their AI work in-house. I think that that would be ridiculous. I'm just more somewhere in the middle of the road. I think probably they they need enough people to know what's going on to not be totally ignorant, but also you know, they shouldn't be leaning so much on their own in-house talent that they're bloating themselves for projects that aren't the right fit. And on a final note here, you know, from all your experience in this space, as you mentioned, I mean, you were working on counterterrorism in your 20s, spent a good number of years working in that capacity. Now you've been another decade working on the high tech, the the, the data, the AI yeah. side. Do you think about any... Me here. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, no, te- decades. Uh, uh, you're not a, you're not a day old. I know you're only 32. So <laughs> you can't you you started working very early, obviously. Any final takeaways in terms of what you hope defense leaders take away in terms of their own skills and their own approach? You, you, we've got some great adv- advice for vendors. Be friendly with a strong demo. Be ready to show value. Don't bring a PowerPoint. That's clear. You know, we've told the, the folks, you know, in the DOD space, don't plan on hiring all this stuff in-house. You know, plan on finding right partners. Any parting advice on the skills you hope they develop or the mind shift you hope that they bring about? that would really serve them in leveling up. Yeah, I think it's whatever any engineer would tell you, which is allow room for failure and you know to fail fast, right? Because I think there are so many programs out there there are people are so risk averse and you know when you think of 
when you think about putting a large project on contract and you, you know, you want something to be ready out of the gate for sure, but you also want there to be room for failure because failure means you've experimented on something, right? And, or, or I should say room for experimentation and failure. You know, we think about that a lot in terms of some of the things that we've done recently where we put Palantir on satellites in space and, you know, like it may not work the first time, but that's the only way we're going to know that it's going to work the second time or the third time. And I think, being able to have the space to like think creatively and not just by the book where there's, you know, a list of a hundred things that you might do, but maybe there's like 120 and those 20 things are reach things that you want to be able to experiment on. And it's going to build the product even more are things that I love to think about. I personally am not, you know, I run our R and D team and I personally am not really good at working on the projects where there's one through a hundred things and that's all we can do because I want to see how do we push the envelope. And so I think when they think about acquiring things, thinking about putting together requirements that are are large enough to leave that room for exploration for, for these companies to be creative about what more they can do and where they can push the envelope and not just deliver exactly to those specs. Yeah, it's it's this is a probabilistic, not a deterministic system with AI, right? Yeah. And there's an inherent approach of we've got to treat this like R&D. We've got to consider this a capability to build where we're willing to do some failing to make progress. Yeah. And I think that is very sound advice for the DOD world, which is very laced up in many, many regards. So hopefully for those of you listeners, you've gotten a lot of takeaways on the vendor and on the buyer side, Shannon. I know that's all we have for time, but thank you so much for being able to join us and share your expertise today. Thanks. I appreciate it, Dan. Wrapping up today's episode, I think the advice Shan offers AI-driven defense contractors and startups is really poignant at the end here. I can tell you as an American voter and taxpayer, it's a little hard to imagine a politician campaigning on the platform that our government, and in particular, the military, should fail more often and faster, or even hire defense contractors that do. But given the amount of oversight a lot of these active and potential contractors have to face, and it all hinges on a complete aversion to failure, the road to making even the most technologically advanced areas of our government more agile will no doubt be a long one. On behalf of Daniel and the entire team here at Emerge, thanks so much for joining us today, and we'll catch you next time on the AI and Business Podcast.